Love is a tender kiss for most people. For me, she saves her sharpest ex. Well, I am ready for a new chapter. Without men. Without cigarettes. Without... I'm finally ready to focus on the one thing that won't let me down. What's that? Us. My position as a royal. My duty. So, I come on bended knee with a familiar request. Give me as much responsibility as you can. As many jobs, as much work. But your sister needs to stay afloat is a sense of meaning. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman and this show will follow the fourth season of the Netflix original series The Crown, episode by episode, taking you behind the scenes, speaking with many of the talented people involved and diving deep into the stories. Today we're talking about episode seven, titled The Hereditary Principle. It's 1985 and Princess Margaret is at an all-time low. She's lonely, her health is failing, and she loses her status as a councillor of state when Prince Edward turns 21. While seeking help from a therapist, Margaret discovers a terrible family secret. She has two cousins who have been hidden from the world for decades. In search of answers, she realises it's not just the cousins who have been treated ruthlessly by the family, but all those who don't fit in. Now, we will cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode. So if you haven't watched episode seven yet, I suggest you do it now or very soon. Coming up later, we'll hear from Head of Research on the Crown, Annie Salzberger. He's a great example of, all right, we read about him. He's half of a page of a book. Mm -hmm. And then we have to go out and try to actually make this man a real human being. We'll also hear from Helena Bonham Carter, who plays Princess Margaret. I have much privacy as a goldfish in a bowl, she observed. <laughs> no intention of telling people what I have for breakfast. That's so funny. You know, she's a real gift to me as a person too. She's left her, her imprint on me. But first, I spoke with director Jessica Hobbs and I asked Jessica how she would describe this episode. I would describe it as a portrait of someone recognising the fragility of their mental health and then understanding that through the shock of their own family history. That's how I, that's how we approached it, really. Not so much that there are, I mean, there are secrets hidden in every family, but it was very much Margaret understanding that there might be more to who she is and that there was a darkness involved in that. As we've watched her through these four seasons now, really, she's just constantly had all these events and situations and circumstances kind of thrown at her or ripped away from her and all the times that she's gone and asked for something she's never been given it and you really feel the weight of that I think. She was a big person mm. in life and she was 
who, given circumstances, while seemingly, um, at, well, being very enormously privileged, were also extremely restrictive. There was a limit to what she could do. And that is very hard to live in, to know that that's your life. But I was so Im- impressed with her, both her level of acceptance, but her constant push against it. It yeah. made me really love her as and a her character. honesty as well. Oh, just... Her honesty, not just about everybody else, because she could be searing and vicious and funny, (laughs) but her honesty towards herself, Mm. and I really admired that. And Helena has the same quality. She's really bright and really funny. She doesn't possess the cruelty because I think she's potentially more at peace with herself, but she understands that... uh, vulnerability and exposure and is prepared, is very brave in in, uh, showing that on screen, I think. Well, I'm ashamed to say I've been feeling a little low for a while now. And this current slump seems to have resisted every attempt I've made to muscle through. Are you aware of anyone else in your immediate family struggling with mental health issues? Prince of Wales, he has his ups and downs. I wouldn't say that's a condition. That's just marriage. The Duke of Gloucester, my uncle, he got low from time to time. I only ask because I am aware, through professional colleagues, of the sisters. Sisters? What were the conversations that you had with Helena about this particular episode? And, and you know, because it's very much focused on her and, and what she discovers, both in terms of where she is and her role within this family and what's been taken away from her again, and then this discovery about secrets that have gone in. Yeah, and the cost of the cost of your allegiance to the crown. If you stay committed within that, the sacrifice is required. And I think for her in this one, the ultimate sacrifice of keeping that secret, you know, even though they discovered, perhaps they discovered, perhaps they knew, we'll never really know. But nothing was ever done about that. I mean, um, Catherine Bosline died in 2014. This episode explores both mental health and disability and through the character of Princess Margaret really highlights how much was hidden away and not understood really. So when we discover the existence of Catherine and Narissa Bowes-Lyon, who we understand to have development disabilities, it's clear that although their challenges in life are very different to Margaret's, Margaret worries that like the Bowes-Lyon sisters, she too will be, I guess, alienated from the family. We've come a long way as a society, but there's still a way to go when it comes to breaking down that barrier even now. Yeah. And I've heard from quite a few people on set that it was very, very important to you to represent Narissa and Catherine and the other residents at the Royal Earlswood by casting actors who have similar conditions. There were lots of good and very important meetings about that 
but I was adamant about it. I've worked with people with various levels of, you know, physical or mental challenges in other productions. And it's always been very important to me to maintain that truthfulness as much as possible. And so if, if I can find actors or even if they're non-actors but they're wanting to perform and wanting to be part of it then that was always my go-to place and then you configure the production needs around that and their needs around that I just didn't want that to be represented by someone who had to apply that in a performative sense I wanted it to come from the inside and so we set ourselves this challenge I just said look as long as we go all the way down the tunnel, if we don't find people, then we can have another discussion about maybe the way we approach the roles. But I don't want to do this without uncovering every rock. Mm -hmm. And particularly Kate Bone, the casting director for that section, I have to pay tribute to. She visited so many people. She went to homes. She went to personal homes. She went to institutions and hospitals and anywhere where people showed an interest. And there are lots of theatre groups and places around and just continued to follow leads. It was great. And then the theatre groups who got involved, because I said, I'm not just having this as a top layer. This has to be everyone in there. And when you're setting that up, it's also going through with the groups going, okay, bring everyone in the day before so they can go into the set and familiarise themselves with it and understand it is a set. But there are people that we were working with who were institutionalised and had come out of that at different stages or were still living in homes. We just wanted to make sure that there weren't going to be triggers of distress or might be uncomfortable for them or frightening. So that was, you know, it was just a whole process of how we worked towards it. It was one of the two best days I've had on set in my life because mm. at the end of it, you could just, the crew were in awe, basically. These people were amazing and they loved it. And that was, for me, the big thing. And it was so, it was really cool. I really hope that people almost use that, that when they see this this wonderful section of this this episode and take that as an example of, how important it is to to represent and the truth that can come from these individuals. I didn't want to make a moralistic judgment. I didn't want to say, oh, it's a Dickensian institution. It was appalling. It was, all, you know, my mother worked in mental health before I was born, but she was a nurse in an institution. So mm -hmm. I'd heard the most wonderful stories about the way people were and what they did and who they thought they were on different days and how you could communicate. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to make sure that there was also love and the way that people were portrayed on set and that there were there was connection between carers. There are extraordinary carers that have worked over the years. It was just finding that balance. The story for me was that the family shut them away because they were ashamed and worried about being tainted. And I think that that's just historically what we've continued to do as a community. Yeah. But I also think we haven't provided help and support for those families who need extra help. So these situations have come about because of the way we've approached it as a community, not just the royal family. I mean, that's an easy, they're an easy target for us. But. Yeah. But I think that that's something that the the Crown does as a series across the whole is that within the dramatisation, the narrative it really draws a spotlight on issues that are relevant now and yeah. are conversations that need to be had now. And even though it's part of the story of the crown, it's very much part of the story of society. I think we always, you know, we're, we're always talking about modernisation, how much progress we've made. It's like, but how much progress have we made in our in our humanity? Yeah. That's how we judge ourselves as a society. Mm. And I think that's where I always find the modern take in the crown is mm. our humanity has shifted less than we would hope. Yeah. And it's good to constantly hold a mirror up to that. 
I wanted to ask as well about, you know, her going into therapy and obviously what that then, within the narrative of the show, what that then unveils. Yeah. But looking back historically with Margaret, if that was something that she actually did. We understand that she did mm. some of it. Um, my take was that she probably wouldn't be the easiest patient to treat. Which Helena definitely <laughs> shows brilliantly. So, so great about it. Just the whole defensiveness. Oh, yeah. Keeping a coat on, all those choices, a sunglass. <laughs> she had a sunglass on <laughs> As we all know, that therapy's only as, as good as you're prepared to be. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's not a, oh, I'll go in and someone will fix me. It, the, the horrible confronting thing about it is, oh, I have to fix myself. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think there's a gentleness with her being able to, you know, what she's trying to say to Margaret is, but you do understand this isn't the same as you. I, I was pointing you in a direction about your family history, not about a specific lineage of, of difference. I love that for me that's actually the thing that unravels her mm. because it just makes her feel more exposed about her own mental health. Part of the journey is to what do you think about your family because this is something I've heard about, so maybe this is something worth for you exploring to find out about. And you, she can see how triggering and shocking it's been for Margaret that her family would go that far as to keep anyone difficult, that's viewed as difficult or different, out of the public eye because it might affect the crown, the status of the crown, and the hereditary principle. Darwin had nothing on you lot. Shame on all of you. Margaret. No. Margaret! I think that scene on the beach going, I'm so sick of it all being about this. I'm so sick of having to be a good girl. I mean, Margaret's mistake is not to conflate what happened to her first cousins with what's going on for her. She understands that. Mm. But what it does is it shines a light on her own fear of her own internal madness. And that's what she finds so frightening about the discovery is a generation ago that would have been me. Because it wasn't, it, what, people weren't particular then. It was a huge, it was a wide sweeping community as to mm -hmm. who got swept away, you know. Schools weren't designed to help people who had different learning abilities. It was all like you either fitted into that middle group or you had to be somewhere else for you to go and preferably shut away. We can't deal with you. We can't deal with it. It's too yeah. hard. We can't deal with it in terms of, we're just trying to get society going. And also it's nicer and neater if we do this and, that, and that's more complicated. And how do we possibly manage... And luckily now through a, a huge amount of advocacy and just sheer drive and willpower of people who've had family members or other people and people themselves going, actually, sorry, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to be invisible anymore and I'm perfectly functional, I'm just a bit different to you. It also feels it's almost like her crescendo as well of her frustration of love or lack of love and also her work and her role and her position, you know, all these you know, as some would say, failings almost. Yeah, which we all have too. I think if you're able to be that cruel and pinpoint others' failures, it's because you are equally able to do that for yourself and she has to live with that discomfort. And I think even the kind of, I mean, I, I think it's funny, the, the scene with the Queen where she says, you know, he's a friend of Dorothy, didn't you know? Yeah. And Margaret, is, of course she knows, but she doesn't want to know because her loneliness is quite profound at that point. Desperate for Dazzle to love her. She's desperate for I would. Uh, Dazzle's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. I get it. <laughs> yeah, it's just not willing. She's just not willing to kind of, you know, change her. Well, that was one step too far of asking her to change her, her religious... Uh, that, that's uh, what that I was... love is so she can deal with the fact that he's <laughs> yeah. this gay best friend and she can pretend, but then, yeah, the, the religious thing is too much. 
As you know, The Crown is a drama, but it's based around true events. So I sat down with The Crown's head of research, Annie Salzberger, to ask why and how the narrative in this episode came to feature the little-known truth about the Queen's cousins, Nerissa and Catherine Bowes-Lyon. I think part of it was just the shock of finding out when we were digging into what happened to the royals and in the 1980s and doing our press passes at the British Library, we came across this article about Catherine Bowes-Lyon, who was still living in the Royal Earlswood Hospital, and it was outed that these two royal cousins had been kept in this institution for their entire adult lives. Nerissa was 22 and she was committed, and Catherine's 15. And we thought, wow, that must have been shocking, and who knew? Our first question was, who knew? And then from that, we found out that there were three other of their cousins. So Catherine and Arissa were two of five children by the Queen Mother's brother and his mm-hmm. wife, Fenella. Mm-hmm. And then Fenella had nieces who had also been sent to Royal Earlswood. So we know that they're, I mean, they're very close in age to Margaret and Elizabeth, which was another interesting thing. We, it made you think instantly there must have been some understanding of each other that they mm. existed in the world they you know they raised at glam's castle which is where the queen mother that was the sort of the queen mother estate and where she was raised in part and one of the daughters who didn't have a disorder was actually the bridesmaid along with margaret at elizabeth's wedding so there there must have been some understanding of each other but essentially catherine and Nerissa boseline were sent to a special school in hemel Hempstead in the 30s mm-hmm. and we know that the queen mother visited there and then in 41, their father has died. It's the middle of the war. Fenella, their mother, feels like she can't handle this on her own anymore. And she she sends them to the Royal Earlswood, which was very common at the time. People felt, I, I don't know what to do mm-hmm. here. I don't know how to help, but these people might know how to help. Yeah. And like most of these institutions, they were very out of the way. And they would even tell Fenella or others not to come because you're just going to disrupt things. We don't have Catherine's files, but we have Nerissa's. And Nerissa's diagnosed imbecile. That's the official term. Now, that doesn't kind of equate to anything today. So then we had to try to read through records to understand how they described any symptoms Mm -hmm. of this illness or physical aspects to it or was just mental. So so her records state that she, quote, makes unintelligible noises all the time is very affectionate and can say a few babyish words. And then staff also described Catherine as alert. She understands she's being told, but she only communicates pointing noises and smiles. She's severely mentally handicapped, but has no physical disabilities. um, Their family relative describes them as lovely children, like frightened does. And that we know that they recognize each other, but they don't recognize other family members, which really interested the doctors. So it was noted down. So that's sort of all we had to work from. And mm-hmm. the only other description of their conditions, I suppose, or really even just their lives, was anytime there was anything royal on television, they would stand and salute. And so it was clear that they recognized their connection to this family. Mm-hmm. So that's what we had to go on. We spoke to a historian of the system of, of sort of asylums and mental disabilities, and uh, and she helped guide us also on 
language to use and how the she put us in touch with people who knew how these institutions were run in 1980. There had been a big shift in how they treat patients over these, like every few years there'd kind of be an awakening. So mm-hmm. we had to get it really right. But she helped us try to understand what this looked like, I suppose. And from what we understand, you know, they were relatively loved there. And what's I think the most surprising is Nerissa dies in 1986. That sort of is one of the things that maybe spurs the article to be written in 87, this investigation into it. Mm. But Catherine only died six years ago. I noticed that at the end of the episode. 2014, yeah. So in the 90s, they decided actually what these people deserve is to, to have sort of lives in the community. Let's no longer separate them out. So she'd actually moved into a sort of community home. But we couldn't really track it down. I tried reaching out to a couple of the nurses who were on their ward, but understandably, I think that they were just a little reticent to speak. So we, we did the best sort of we could with the information that we had. And I think ultimately, I, I'm, I'm very happy with the level of care we took in this, in this yeah. episode. This is a terrible year on kind of all fronts for Margaret. Um, she is incredibly lonely. She lives a life now of walkers, like guys who sort of escort her to events, but there isn't really romance in her life anymore. Roddy has gone off. He's got a couple kids now. He's married. She's actually godmother to his, I think, one of his children. And they actually have a friendship that continues on and on, but it's it's not romantic, you know, and there's a real loss there. So when her health fails her in the same way did her father, there's a terrifying moment. And actually in that scene, we worked with the guy operating her on her is a surgeon, <laughs> Wow. Who we consult with. With a body that was made yeah. with a removable lung. Yes, exactly. This is extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we didn't have her medical records. We had some descriptive accounts. So he helped us understand what they would have known in that moment and what technology would have been used for her to get the scans to find out that it's it's there and so on and so forth. So it's a year where the press really goes at her for looking haggard. And it's just an all-around crappy, crappy year for Margaret. And then we felt this was these two stories, though though we're compressing the timelines. I suppose the shunning of these two girls, which was what was done, unfortunately, at that time, mm. is just a more shocking example of what has to be hidden to, to remain an active part of this family or sort of accepted part of this family. And it felt like a very strong way to explore Margaret's feelings of being ostracized, Mm. unused, unwelcome. Demoted. Yeah, so she's demoted as the counselor of state. And counselors of state are senior royals that the queen can delegate a sort of higher level work to, which may be because she's out of the country on tour, which is absence, or she's sick, which is incapacity. These counselors of state are the monarch, her spouse, and the first four people in the line of succession. And that means that when Edward turns 21 in this episode... He then knocks her off the list because he is higher in the line of succession than she is. This doesn't mean her life as a working royal has stopped. She's still patron of dozens of charities and organizations. She's still doing all that kind of ribbon cutting that we know. But it does mean that she's no longer in this elite tier. It's worth noting that while this seems stringent, the number of these counselors of state, when the queen ascended to the throne and King George died... The Queen Mother refused to give up her position. So Elizabeth made an exception for her. So all of a sudden the number shot up. And she could have technically done the same for Margaret, 
but it seems to not have been on the table at the time. So, I mean, in our minds, who knows, she could have been incredibly miffed that the same consideration wasn't given to her. But what we do know is 85 was a really terrible year for her, uh, health-wise, in terms of her status within the royal family, and just an overall sense of loneliness. I'm, I'm all ears and eyes and lips. All right. Did you say lips? (laughs) 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 Are you feeling naughty? Yes, I can see that. Mm -hmm. Ma'am. I have greatly enjoyed the last few months and the closeness that has developed between us. Not closeness, intimacy. Oh, God. Please. Dazzle, who very much deserved his nickname, which I shall explain, he, he became the Reverend Derek Jennings. He was, and we don't quite know how they met, but essentially he used to be a civil servant. He worked in what is now English heritage. So he became best buddies with the aristocrats of the country because he would help pay for their repairs to their very costly homes in order to preserve them for kind of cultural history. Mm -hmm. So most of these aristocrats were quite cash poor. All of their money was in their property. And he would come in and, and get them a new roof that they didn't have to pay for. And so he entered these social circles that way. That's, we, we imagine that's sort of how they met. So we know that by the early 80s, she's spending a lot of time with him. He has a flat in Chelsea. They hang out. They drink. They talk about Catholicism. He's really keen on the Catholic Church. She doesn't know yet that he's going to actually go into the Catholic Church. She's always been flirting with Catholicism since the 1950s. There's something about the drama of Catholic ceremonial life that she as you can imagine, finds fascinating, whereas the (laughs) mundanity of the Anglican church, I think, and the kind of stripped back nature of of the church is something she just doesn't necessarily connect with in the same way. So, but she knows there's, she can't go over to the Catholic church because her her sister is the head of the Anglican church. There's there's nothing she can really do, um, but she enjoys speaking to him about it. And he is closeted, But it's an open secret, but she falls in love with him, like genuinely falls for him. And he had earned his nickname, I mean, just because people found him dazzling, it's it's no joke. I mean, they say called him a sparkler. One quote was he was very volatile. He would tremble with nervous energy and be very naughty. Uh, (laughs) He could be charming and rude. And one called him a spiky old queen. So... um, (laughs) <laughs> so he was rather dazzling and he did ride his bike everywhere. He didn't know how to drive, which is what we show. <laughs> so he forms his friendship and then he goes off to Rome to officially become part of the Catholic Church. He returns in 87 and, and starts work in London. Mm. And we know that they have a falling out. We don't know why they have a falling out, but it's a very serious one. And he dies in the 90s and I don't think she ever reconciled with him. He's a great example of, all right, we read about him. He's half of a page of a book. Mm -hmm. And then we have to go out and try to actually make this man a real human being. And so we spoke to someone who knew him well, and he provided us with some personal photographs. We actually knew what Dazzle looked like. And and he just gave us great commentary about his sort of cheekiness. I mean, he was like 
really shocking temper at times, and which she would have loved, yeah. loved. There's a phrase in our show where she says he has a, he doesn't have a good word for a kind word for anybody. That's exactly the kind of thing she'd want. In case you hadn't noticed, Dazzle, I've already submitted something larger. The royal family of the United Kingdom. If I became Catholic, it would be a national scandal. There'd be talk of betrayal, second reformation. No, they'd make me give up my title and kick me out. Would that be so bad? To free yourself once and for all? To find happiness? Why would I? The title, my seniority, the proximity to the crown, is my happiness. It's who I am. Ugh. I don't expect you to understand. No, I don't understand. You've just discovered terrible things about your family. A system that ignored five members of its own to protect itself. Will that same system protect you? No. It doesn't protect anything except the centre. Those away from the centre... But I am in the centre. I am in the very centre. I am the Queen's sister, daughter to a King Emperor, and I will always be in the center. And now it's time to hear from our very own Princess Margaret. I went over to Helena Bonham Carter's house for a cup of tea shortly after she'd finished filming season four in early 2020. Sorry about that dog. I wish you just mentioned that your gorgeous dog who adores you so much he can't be further than a metre from you. But has to have a snack. He's having a snack. He's not been to etiquette school. He's got really quite loud eating habits, but we love him. He's terrible habits. Every time I took him to the set, he managed to do a poo. And Did you manage to get him on screen yet? I mean, that would be not a great Not screen, thing. but he went into the production office, he did a poo there, he did in the transport <laughs> office, he did a poo there. And then he went to makeup. This last time when we thought he's actually old enough. They said, oh, he's trained now. Makeup. Instant poo. Yeah. He's too excited. It's yeah, too he exciting. just needs to. He goes, like, this is my world. So, episode seven is really Margaret's. And I have, we, we have a dalliance with somebody called Dazzle. Love Dazzle. I love Dazzle. And he's played by Tom Burke and heading towards an affair. And then he announces he has to become, or he's, he's going to become a Catholic priest. They are a sort of odd couple too. And she makes a play for him and he rejects her. Lots happens in episode seven. Episode seven, with, as with most of Margaret's, is about her losing more things. It's always a series of losses with <laughs> <But> Margaret. <laughs> I mean, I think that as well, the relationships that Margaret has with all these other characters and the stories that we weave through, you know, we left season three with that just hugely emotional scene with Margaret and Elizabeth after, you know, Margaret's suicide attempt. Mm. And that's the thing where you kind of strip back to the, the, the story being about sisters, sisters. and it being a, an incredibly intimate and emotional experience about the idea of losing one another, one of you losing yeah. the other. When I first read the whole of season this season, I said, it's great how you've got the Queen coming to Margaret as a sister and asking for her help mm -hmm. because it also carries a whole new different relationship, which is sort of set up at the, in that end scene mm -hmm. where she says, look, I am here and you can ask for my help. And you've just said that I'm the most important person. So suddenly the rivalry's vanished not banished, but it's less less controlling mm. of their relationship and it's more of about that they're real 
real supports to each other. They often have the same conversation, those two sisters. With, I'm coming to you. Can you give me some more work? Give yeah. me a role. Give me something to do because I've nothing to anchor me. She has to have some kind of purpose. Yeah. Give me work, you mm-hmm. know. Particularly now she's had to get, at this point, she's had to give up her fags, give up her alcohol, give up men. And, and her she gay says, priest. Oh, and her gay priest, everything. <laughs> and she just says, oh, but I know I'm available now to do work. You know, give me... And immediately after that is actually, we're going to take, take it away. I don't want more time. Don't you see? Time, it scares me. It fills me with dread. I want... I want something to fill it with. Well, you still have your interests. Oh, please! And your friends? Friends. It's the ones worth knowing. They're fed up with me. Your charities? Charities? They don't want me either. No, not now. We have the Princess of Wales. She's younger. She's nicer. Prettier. No, nobody wants this. Oh, Marco. I asked you for just one thing. To give me work. A purpose, dignity. Yes, and if it were up to me, I would have given it all to you. The whole show, gladly, from day one, but it's not. So we have to live with it. No, I will have to live with it, not you. I will. Uh, See, I can't understand why the Queen just didn't give her stuff to do. Because she was brilliant at it. I don't know what happened in the real Mm. version, but in our version, we're we're talking about a time when... Rules were rules, and mm-hmm. that's what defines the monarchy. And that's, and Margaret herself, uh, you know, somebody who was an, a protocol, you know, obsessive. Like, mm-hmm. no, this is the way it's done, and that's it. And it's almost like that. Without those rules, any hierarchy will just crumble. The monarchy will crumble. So if you take away those rules, or you start making allowances, then they start becoming wobbly, and then mm-hmm. suddenly everything you're just left with nothing. The castle falls. I've got to keep reminding myself that. Peter's version is different. And I think that's a, it is dramatized. I do feel very strongly because I think we have a moral responsibility to say, hang on, guys, this is not his, Mm -hmm. this isn't, we're not telling it. It's not drama. We're making a drama. So they are two different, different entities. From reading, I was, you know, really lucky to be privy to the research document for this season, which is, it's amazing to read through and stuff, you know, kind of do that first flick through and look at the pictures. And then I go back and then I read those. That is a proper document. Believable. That is amazing. And then, and then Peter switches things up. Yeah. juggles. The story about Catherine and is absolutely true. Mm. Whether Margaret had that sense of empathy with them and whether she didn't know, absolutely no idea. But Catherine and Larissa and three others were locked up and declared dead when they were very much alive. Mm. Having said that, it was a genetic, it wasn't depression or anxiety. There's a difference between depression and emotional mm-hmm. ill health and physical. and physical. Yeah, But I found that, you know, in terms of just fascinating from the journey that the story takes. And, I mean, do you find that side of it useful, having, you know, Annie's team and... The research yeah. that they do oh, no, and the depths that they go to for things. And Jess is also, because Jess was my director on that, yeah. and she's fantastically thorough. And so part of the rehearsal is working out the background and working out actually 
the whole of the family tree and the different members and certain things that people behaved oddly and then no one really ever talked about them, these days would easily have a, a label slapped on them. Yeah. But then people didn't really know, so then... And, you know, in the olden times, people, everybody was put in a mental asylum, whether you had a breakdown or whether you were had brain damage. Mm-hmm. Look at Prince Philip's mum, Princess Alice as well, you know, yeah. what she went through. Exactly. And then that generation prior trauma, to it, yeah. Anybody who was just not normal. And And how they almost tried to hide it all as well, you know, or kind of not address it or kind of just almost just close one eye to it. You know, it's it's over there, I can't see it, I don't have to deal with it. Well, there was an inability to cope with it because people didn't know enough and they didn't know, it was almost contagious. Mm. And it's quite interesting when the Queen Mother, when Marion is brilliant and gives her side of the story, (laughs) Margaret goes to her and says, how could you do this? And she says, you don't understand the context. It's not just a lack of humanity or compassion. There's so many extenuating circumstances. Mm. And you can also understand that as a widow, the mother, Fenella, was highly... She was probably exhausted. It was the World War. She'd lost her husband. She'd lost her husband. Mm. And she was with two children who she had no control of. Their illness, their imbecility... Don't use those words. Their professionally diagnosed idiocy and imbecility would make people question the integrity of the bloodline. What? Can you imagine the headlines if it were to get out? What people would say? The hereditary principle already hangs by such a precarious thread. Throw in mental illness and it's over. The idea that One family alone has the automatic birthright to the crown is already so hard to justify. The gene pool of that family had better have 100% purity. There have been enough examples on the Windsor side alone to worry people. King George III, Prince John, your uncle, If you add the Bose-Lyon illnesses to that, the danger is it becomes untenable. Are you going to miss Margaret? Yes, I am. And we talk books off air when we're not recording. The room is full of books. (laughs) But the book that's on the top of your pile to your right, it's still Margaret. It's been a great marriage, me and her. Yeah. It's two years. The Wicked Wit of Princess Margaret, Mm. which you absolutely just exude. I have much privacy as a goldfish in a bowl, she observed. (laughs) I have no intention of telling people what I have for breakfast. That's so funny. You know, she's a real gift to me as a person too. She's left her, her... imprint on me and that's often what happens with people that you play in what way you carry bits around beyond the actual performance in life she's given me some boundaries too which i'm not very good on meaning that i'm very available to anybody and everybody and sometimes people should rear fuck off (laughs) (laughs) and then um yeah she's definitely with me i have felt very very much that she's having great fun and, and her ability to have fun and sense of humour and keep things in proportion. It's meant that I can feel her enjoying it. I don't yeah. think she, honestly, I think she's just like, yeah, this is funny and fun. Oh, 
Thank you for letting us come round again and chat. Anytime. You can do it next season, even though I'm not in it. Can we just pretend? Yeah. <laughs> just get your thoughts about it. No, I still think she's going to hang around. Margaret and me have not finished. We'll do something. Will you? I don't one know woman show. Yeah, I don't think one woman. But somebody did actually say that they had written the real Margaret a show. Because what really Margaret would have loved to have done was play the piano, tell stories. Well, play the piano, definitely. Ronnie Scott's going to have a fact. That's what <laughs> Prince Charles said the real Margaret loves. They're like, my aunt was the best and the happiest at the Ivories, fag, whiskey, and just playing. A cabaret tour. Yes, it would be hilarious. <laughs> but she'll pop up in my daily life because I know she's just so embedded in me. She won't go away that easily. I'm Edith Bowman, and my special thanks to our guests on this episode, Jessica Hobbs, Annie Salzberger, and Helena Bonham Carter. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and something else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us next time when we go behind the scenes of episode eight of season four called The African Queen. Queen Elizabeth struggles to remain impartial as she finds herself at odds with Thatcher, who refuses to back sanctions against South Africa's apartheid regime and support the will of the Commonwealth. When the conflict is leaked to the press by a source at the palace, has the Queen gained the upper hand or caused a constitutional crisis? It is my fervent hope that Britain will join the other countries of the Commonwealth and impose sanctions on an apartheid regime that has no place in the modern world. Let us be quite clear about this. Nothing useful can be achieved by sanctions. Really? It was my understanding they would devastate the South African government. Well, they would devastate us too. Trade between our two countries is worth three billion pounds a year. I thought we might look at it from the South African point of view. I am, ma'am. South Africa is already a disinvestment economy. But black South Africans want sanctions, so shouldn't we listen to them? Well, black South Africans don't want to inherit a wasteland. They will if they feel it is their wasteland. President Kaunda of Zambia would confirm as much. It is not the business of a British prime minister to consult with unelected dictators. But it is a sovereign's duty when they are part of the Commonwealth. Yes, the Commonwealth. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.